Welcome, everyone, to the latest edition of the Sermapod, the official podcast of the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I am the founder and CEO of Serma, Rich Lancom. I'm also the host of the Sermapod. And today we're very privileged to have Pete Halprin. Pete's with Passage LLP. They are a firm with offices uh, across the country, primarily in Los Angeles and New York. Uh, Passage is also our first ever member firm to have multiple attorneys join up. So we're very honored and privileged to have Pete with us today. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rich. Thank, thanks for having me. I'm excited to get sermonated here today. Absolutely. So, Pete, we're talking today about uh, hacks in the entertainment industry, something that I know a lot of your clients who are uh, movie studios and, and distributors are concerned about. Tell us. And, you know, this is a problem that is uh, pervasive across the board. We're seeing a lot of uh, big tentpole movie franchises being released in the coming months for Christmas and then for the summer. We're just coming off a huge release of the Tom Cruise Maverick sequel. We've got movies like Avatar 2, lots of Marvel franchises coming out. All of those companies distributing, releasing those films are very concerned about protecting their intellectual property from hackers. Tell us why that's a problem, and then we'll also talk a little bit about uh, how we got here and lessons from this the Sony hack. But in terms of right now, why is this an issue that your clients are concerned about? Yeah, and, and thank you, Rich. I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, right, which is that movies are hit the box office, and that first box office weekend is so critical to the success, commercial success of a movie and its distribution and all that. And so, so much hinges on getting the release exactly right. And the concern that some of our clients and others are having is that if those movies get released either onto the web or the scripts get released or some other confidential information gets released, it really harms that commercial viability. And so folks are asking us to take a look at their insurance policies and try to figure out a way to make sure that if that bad thing were to happen, that they'd be covered. Um, you mentioned the, the Sony hack that, that goes back eight years, but I think that was the biggest hack in the industry, and that is a good case study or a good example of how bad these things can get and, and, and how many directions the harms can go. And aside from the obvious problem uh, of, uh, listen, people want to get stuff for free. That's a tale as old as time. Why do you think that given today's technology and uh, availability of content, this continues to be as big an issue that studios are concerned about? Well, I, you know, the, the, the Sony hack provides an interesting example, right? So there are a lot of different theories about how Sony got hacked. Um, one very pervasive theory is that it was an insider. It was a disgruntled ex-employee who decided to, who still had access, was able to get in and release the information. Um, we've seen other hacks, both in and outside of entertainment, where it's been an insider threat. So you do have this to contend with. Um, another threat that you have to contend with is governments, right? So another theory in the Sony hack was that it was North Korea and they were upset about the movie, the interview, which had come out, um, you know, funny, funny movie, making fun of uh, their leader and their government. And so there was a concern that, you know, there was, there was a governmental aspect to it. Uh, and then the other part is activists or what they call in this space, hacktivists. So you get folks who have an ax to grind with a company for whatever reason. Maybe there was a sexual harassment issue or something with the environment or some other cause 
that the hacktivist is concerned about that relates to the movie or relates to the studio or the company. And so they decide, okay, here's what we're going to do to get back at the company. We're going to go into their private emails and we're going to release information. And, you know, you mentioned movies coming out from a dollar perspective. That's certainly huge, but there are other things that can happen, right? And in the Sony hack, you have the actor compensation coming out, right? And so that can create issues between actors or within the industry. You had emails, private emails from high-level executives that were saying all kinds of not-so-nice things about other people in the industry. And again, that also hurts the reputation. So there are all these different things that can – you have all these different threats from the outside and then all these different um, private pieces of information that can cause real harm to the company in the inside. So you talked about you know revenge as a possible motivating factor, for example, for uh, North Korea. But what are some of the economic drivers of, of hacks in this space? What can people uh, make economically uh, by hacking into this kind of intellectual property and then releasing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen the individuals making money so much off of it, so much as it just harming the economic value of, of the movie. But if you think about, you know, the world with, with TMZ and recordings that people have and they find, you know, if you were hacking into the private emails of a company and you heard them disparaging an actor or, you know, saying something that was, you know, bigoted or, or harassing, you know, I, I certainly think there'd be an economic dollar value for the, you know, enterprising person who decided to, to do that. Or, or even you have a criminal gang that takes it and then, you know, someone else buys the information off of them because they, they see it as having economic value. So, Peter, you're in the, you know, coverage space. That's a lot of what you and your firm does. Um, what are the types of coverage out there available uh, and how have things in that space changed in the wake of the Sony hack? So I, I think the biggest thing that's happened in the last five to 10 years has been the, um, the evolution and the uh, introduction of cyber insurance. And so cyber insurance products uh, kind of run the gambit. And I would say this, too, because it's a relatively new area of coverage, um, there are a lot of participants in it. It's a growing market. And uh, there is no uniformity in language. So there's a lot of differences in terms of what's out there. So it's hard to say, you know, you want the standard form cyber policy or something like that. Um, and, and I also would say for a large enough company, you want to try to have a bespoke policy that's tailored as much as possible to, to you and to your needs. But, you know, primarily there, there are cyber insurance products out there. There may be, you know, tech E&O and other types of of products like that, or even add-ons to your package policy that might provide some coverage along the way. Um, I think just speaking about cyber more broadly, you know, in addition to this business income risk and to the release of movies, uh, you have other risks, right? I mean, you're, you're in Chicago, you've got the Illinois Privacy Act, right? You've got people going crazy over potential liabilities associated with that. Um, and then you've got other concerns just about personal information um, getting out there. So there's a lot of different ways in which you have these cyber and privacy risks that companies are concerned about um, getting out there. And then you also just have, you know, unfortunately, I'd say the more run of the mill, but these days, very common business email compromise and phishing schemes, right? Where, you know, if you think it's your partner asking you for money to invest in a certain project, and it turns out it's actually not, it's a hacker somewhere. Or you think it's a longtime vendor that you've worked with for many years, changing their bank accounts, and it turns out that the new bank account is not real. So we're seeing all kinds of different things coming up and our clients being concerned about all of these threats. But I, I do think the business income losses have the greatest potential for, you know, harm to the bottom line. 
Yeah, I am in Chicago, as you mentioned. And it's, a, it's a beautiful day out here, as you see from my background, Peter. And, and Matt, our producer, and I were talking about how it looks like an actual virtual background, just the way my I, I, I thought it was virtual. This is actually <laughs> an actual background of the city behind me. So it's a beautiful day. But let's talk about the coverage for a little more detail, because what kind of uh, risks, what kind of cover, what, what kind of things are covered and what uh, exclusions do exist? Obviously, um, you know, uh, there are certain things that are probably prohibitively expensive to cover uh, that are outside of these policies. But as a policyholder, what kind of things should people be looking to get covered and what are what's typically excluded? Yeah, so, so part of the challenge is that there's a lack of uniformity. So even if I told you, hey, there's a war exclusion, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second, there's quite a lot of variation in terms of what the wording is that comprises that exclusion. Um, but I, I think at a basic level, the main things that you want to ensure is both first-party and third-party risk. So you want to be protected against your losses, disruptions from, from ransomware, disruptions from you know these phishing schemes, um, business income losses from your downtime, even contingent business income losses if, let's say, your cloud provider goes down or something of that nature. And then on the third-party side, you want to make sure particularly with um, privacy liability or network security that if the company gets sued from the release of data or as a result of one of these breaches, that there is protection both for defense costs and then also for indemnity if you owe money. Um, I'd also throw fines and penalties in the mix, which is if you have uh, regulatory bodies coming after you and they're assessing fines and penalties, that there's express coverage for, for that kind of thing as well, because that is a, that is a growing risk. And what is the war exclusion? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's um, it, it's pretty interesting. So, and again, I say that as a geeky insurance lawyer, but uh, I, I believe it. So if you go back in time and you think about property insurance policies, one of the things that the insurers would always carve out is a war. So if you know your um, your office building were to get destroyed by lightning or a flood or you know, some other storm or something like that, that's covered. But if it was destroyed because, you know, the Canadians decided to bomb your office building, um, you know, that would not be covered. That would not be a fortuitous loss in the same way as some of these other weather-driven events. Um, and what's happened is you have this very murky area in the cyberspace where you have folks who are government adjacent, but not necessarily acting on behalf of a government uh, and questions about whether or not that would fall within kind of a war or a warlike acts exclusion. And so uh, I think the conflict between Ukraine and, and Russia, or rather Russia's invasion of Ukraine, helps to demonstrate some of these issues. So, for example, there were a group of patriotic Ukrainians who, who manipulated the Russian Uber app so that all of the taxis in Moscow went to the same place at the same time. Right. And it was a small act of you know, defiance and, and whatnot, but it had real repercussions. It held up traffic. It's prevented people from getting their taxis, going about their jobs, et cetera. Um, and the folks who claim responsibility were just a patriotic group of Ukrainians um, where, uh, you know, and, and similarly in some of the North Korean or, or China uh, related hackings, the groups that did it were allegedly not part of the government, not connected to the government, but patriotic citizens. Right. So if you have a situation where patriotic citizens are engaging in these kinds of acts, you know, but taking out a power plant or attacking a movie studio or something else like that, 
um, and it's not technically the government, does that fall within a warlike act uh, or a, a war? Or is this a carve-out? Is this something that might fall within a carve-out to the exclusion as cyber-terrorism or something of that nature? So um, the word cyber-terrorism comes up in most of the carve-outs that I see, but it's defined differently in almost every policy that I've seen. So um, you know that, that is one of the challenges. But the basic concept is, does this fall within the, you know, the, the typical thought of what is a war? And if it does, are the insurers able to exclude it? And if it doesn't, you know, is it able to be covered? Pete, getting back to the cyber attacks uh, a little bit more when it comes to, you know, films, for example. I mean, you know, typically uh, entities learn about that after they've been hacked, right? After uh, the, the, the crime and the loss has already transpired. But, you know, in the wake of Sony, I know that uh, a lot of studios and distributors are looking to be more proactive when it comes to protecting these things. So what are some ways that that's happened rather than just wait, unfortunately, for the bad guys to act? Yeah, I mean, the, the insurance is absolutely the last resort. When all else fails, this is the bottom line protection that you want to have. But in terms of thinking about risk management more broadly, I know we have a lot of risk management folks here whose jobs are much broader than insurance. They're thinking about the enterprise as a whole. Right. There's a lot that they can do. Um, I think, number one, you really want to make sure that you have senior level buying. You want the uh, C-suite to be focused on these issues and to allocate resources to protect the company and protect the network of the company, not just to invest in the insurance. Uh, you want to have a good culture, right? You want people thinking about cyber hygiene. Here at our firm, for example, we do phishing tests monthly. So we send out fake phishing emails to all of our employees, and then I get a report at the end of the month about who clicked and who, you know, who was able to avoid the, uh, the trap. Um, so you want that culture. You want to have those trainings. You want to have those tools. Um, you also want to do incident response planning. So you want to basically, you know, do an exercise where you bring all the key people together and say, okay, let's imagine it's a ransomware attack. What do we do? And you want to game that out. And you do want to kind of involve your vendors and also your insurers, but you want to make sure that the company knows what its vulnerabilities are, and then addresses those vulnerabilities. I mentioned um, regulators earlier. Regulators are now just starting to go after companies when they have big breaches. And one of the things that the regulators are focused on is known vulnerabilities. So they're not going after people just because they were hacked. They're going after people who were hacked saying, hey, you guys took the ostrich approach, right? Head in the sand. You guys took the approach of, we think it'll be okay. Let's not worry about it. And you can't do that. If you know that there's a problem, you have to address it. The other thing, which also arose in Sony or, or is speculated in Sony, um, is physical security, right? You know, how many times does someone walk through office building doors and then someone kind of sneak in behind them or grab the door behind them or, you know, engage in these kinds of social engineering things where they call pretending to be someone from the company? You really want to make sure that you nail down those more physical measures. Um, and I think, you know, related to that, is just making sure that people understand, you know, if you're going to give people access to files, if you're going to give people access to physical spaces, that you limit the access to only those who need it. Um, that was one of the other problems with Sony too, which is that once the bad actors were able to find an exploit and get into the system, they were able to take everything. And, and it doesn't really make sense that if, you know, I'm able to get into your systems as a junior paralegal, you know, that I should have access to, let's say, every case in the firm, even the ones that I'm not involved with, or the finances of the firm, 
or some other aspect of what the company does uh, that isn't part of my purview. So there's a lot of things I think that companies can do to really protect themselves and avoid these things from, I mean, it's not always avoidable in the first place, but at least you can limit the damage or, or limit, you know, how bad the, the company is affected by these kinds of things. And these are things uh, that you would counsel any client or are there specific steps uh, in the entertainment industry that, that our, our listeners should uh, engage in? Yeah, I, I mean, these are steps that I think largely come out of Sony. So I think that they're all good things for the for the entertainment industry. Um, but I, I would I would also urge people to be very careful in what they put in email. I know people are, are busy and they're doing deals and they're on their phones and they're they're trying to send information quickly. But, you know, one of the things that was really harmful to Sony was all of the disparaging things that executives said about folks. And I know, you know, that, that that's going to happen. Right. That's. Some of that is just kind of the nature of the business, but having people be aware that, you know, these are these are the risks, right? These are things that could get out. And if they get out, you know, they'll have huge reputational risks for the client. Pete Halpern from Passage, tell us a little bit more about uh, your practice and, and your firm generally. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, and, and thank you for the opportunity. So we are an insurance recovery boutique. We help clients who have disputes with their insurance companies. We advise them on risk management issues, and we also take a look at policies when people have questions about wording. Uh, these days, cyber seems to be a hot topic, so we're looking at a lot of cyber policies, which is why I say there's a, uh, a lack of, of uniformity. Um, we've got folks on both coasts, and um, we represent a lot of Hollywood. We represent a lot of Broadway, a lot of sports teams, and we've actually written the book, uh, the treatise on sports and entertainment insurance law. So if anyone is hankering to read that either as a sleep aid or for general interest, um, we're happy to, to send that along. So um, excited to be a part of this and looking forward to meeting all the other members. All right, Pete. Well, uh, we're going to sign off with a new segment here on the Sermon Pod. Put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, Please. I was a big fan of James Lipton inside the Actors Studio, who ended off, of course, every interview with his uh, questions that were based on someone else, a French artist. But anyway... I'm going, to, I'm going to do, I'm going to sign off every summer pod with a series of questions that because we're a sports and entertainment organization, our, our, our listeners and our viewers want to know a little bit about your taste when it comes to sports and entertainment. So I don't know if you could tell, but I'm just coming off the top of my head. All right. So your favorite sports memory, and by the way, I'm not going to ask your favorite sports team because we did that at our seminar in Philly. That's too easy. Yeah. Right. And I'm a New Yorker. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm through and through. All right. So what is the most, impactful sports memory of your life. It could be good. It could be bad, but the one that really left a stamp on your brain as a sports fan. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of the New York giants. And uh, when the giants were in the super bowl and, and Scott Norwood missed the field goal and the giants won, I think it was 20 to 19. Uh, I was a kid, but it was, it was, it was amazing. And, and all wide, right. My, wide right, wide right, wide right. And all, of my best, all my best memories, yeah, the Giants beating the Patriots in both of those games on ridiculous catches, helmet catches. You know, I, I, I put three in there. But uh, number one, though, was, was wide right. All right. Well, that was a good one. But the question was impactful. So the, the corollary is, what's the most heartbreaking sports memory of your life? Oof. It's got to be when the Red Sox came back and beat the Yankees. Ah, uh, Poppy. Uh, I, 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 was that 2003, 2000, 2004, 
three, four. Poppy started it, right? And then one of the great all-time comebacks, who's your daddy, all that stuff. So that's And I fun. happened to be dating a girl from Boston at the time, so it was particularly impactful to lose. <laughs> all right, that's a good one. Third question, sports-related. We're going to get to entertainment here in a second as we're rolling. Who is the – who's on your bucket list athlete-wise that would – if you could pick one athlete to have dinner with, either alive or dead, who would that be? Whew. Great who would, question. Who would really uh, buckle your knees? Who would really you'd be starstruck? Derek Jeter. I think Derek Jeter. Jeter. I told you my feelings about Jeter uh, privately <laughs> after. That's that's a good one. All right, let's turn to let's turn to movies now. Uh, what is your favorite movie line or lines of all time? What passage from what movie? Do you quote? Do you love to hear? You know, I, I, I love Top Gun. I, I think I told you that I was I was raised on that movie. I, I, I sat there with the plane, I think, at uh, uh, an age that was probably too young. I, I thought I was Maverick. Um, so, you know, I, there are so many good lines from that. I, I think whenever it comes on TV, I, I throw in line after line. But, um, you know... I really love the um, the banter that he has with with his flight instructor and with his uh, his co-pilots and and when he uh, he makes he, he he makes an offer he makes a move on his flight instructor and she secretly writes her phone number you know on, on the paper she gives him and then uh, <laughs> uh, uh, God Val Kilmer's uh, co-pilot is Rio turns to him with the plane and goes <laughs> crash and burn man. Crash and burn. That's that's one of my favorites. Yeah, and then and then he and then he says you stink, which is my favorite line of uh, of any any Top Gun movie. Um, Slider, you stink. That was his name, Slider. Greatest greatest <laughs> comeback. Uh, all right, how you doing? Are you ready for two more? We got two more movie related. You ready? I got what you got. Go for it. All right. So um, the uh, let's see the movie the, the first how about just the first movie you ever remember seeing. In your life, what was the first movie you were, you recall actually going to in a theater? Because you know, back then you would see him in a theater. Going to a movie in a theater, hmm. That's a. T I, I was going to say Fantasia before you added in the uh, mm. in a theater, but I feel like when I was a kid, I watched like old Disney movies, and and uh, that was probably the first one that I could think of. And it was wild. It was wild. Fantasia qualifies. All right. Last question. This is a toughie, Peter. Right. You're you're a, you're a lawyer. You do this all the time. You think on your feet. What is one movie for which they haven't made a sequel? Because we just talked about Top Gun Maverick. Right? It, it it's the longest tenure, the longest distance between movie sequels. I think of all time, right? So, what is the one movie? that there hasn't been a sequel for, that you would love, that you would pay to go see in a theater they made a sequel for? Wow, you, re you really did put me on the spot there. I, I would say generally, you know, I I'm, I'm not a sequel person. I, I like the one movie, and I think one and done, you know, because oftentimes when you do the second movie, you're kind of, you've closed the arc, and now you're reopening it. All our listeners hear you stalling like a good lawyer and thinking of <laughs> every reason not to answer that question. Well, you know, I, I really love my, if I hadn't said Top Gun, I would have said Usual Suspects as ah, one of my favorite movies. There you go. Um, I loved that movie. I also like Primal Fear. Both of them had cliffhangers, which, right. which is how they left you. So 
I don't know how they would create a sequel for it, but you know, the acting in, in both of those, you know, between Ed Norton and, and Kevin Spacey in, you know, just leaving you there like, wow, um, that's the feeling that I want to have when I leave a movie. So uh, it would probably have to be one of those. Peter Halpern, like Derek Jeter in his last at bat, which was a homer, you, I think it was a homer, pretty sure it was a homer, you uh, stepped up at the moment. You hit a home run on our inaugural kickoff of the Sermapod quiz questions. We'll, we'll call we'll Matt Little will come up with a great name, but those are great answers. Appreciate all of that. Appreciate the excellent update on uh, what we've learned from the Sony hack, where we are today, some of the cyber risks and insurance coverage issues surrounding that. Uh, this podcast uh, will be released shortly. By the time you're watching it, it'll be released already. So again, Pete, Alperin from Passage LP, thank you so much for joining us on the Sermapod. Thanks for having me, Rich, and uh, happy to come back anytime. You know, stump me. I'm, I'm ready for your questions. Love it. Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.